Okay, I have noon on the dot. So I'm gonna go ahead and get started. So good afternoon, everyone. My name is Stephanie Bowers and I am the human rights coordinator and equity director for the city of Iowa City. And I'd like to welcome everyone to the first lens webinar of 2024. And before I introduce the speaker, I just want to give a shout out to Sakawas Novis, who is the executive director and founder of Great Plains Action Society. Sakawas was the person who introduced me to uh, the Rethinking Columbus, the Next 500 Years book. And uh, without her, uh, this program wouldn't even be occurring. So I just want to, again, thank her. And I hope that one day she is able to join us and actually talk more about herself and her organization at one of these webinars. So with that, um, I will now introduce Bill Bigelow. Bill taught high school social studies in Portland for almost 30 years. He is the curriculum editor of Rethinking Schools and the co-director of the Zen Education Project. This project, inspired by the work of historian Howard Zinn, offers free materials to teach a fuller people's history than is found in commercial textbooks. Bill is the author or co-editor of numerous books, including A People's History for the Classroom and The Line Between Us, teaching about the border and Mexican immigration. And just as a housekeeping matter, Bill would like to present uh, first, and we do have the chat open. And so if you have comments or questions, you can place them there. And after he is done with the presentation, we will read off your comments and questions and uh, he will answer. So with that, I will hand it over to you, Bill. Okay, thanks, Stephanie. Big thanks to Stephanie Barris for doing all the prep work on this and putting up with my technological illiteracy. I really appreciate it a lot. So, you know, what I want to do today, um, I want to talk about how the traditional curriculum teaches children contempt for values of democracy and racial equality, racial justice. And I want to do that by looking at the Columbus myth, not because I think that, you know, Columbus is the biggest influence on kids in school, but I think it makes a really good example for what goes on more broadly in the curriculum. I don't want to undersell, though, the import of the, the Columbus story, because I think it might be the first time in the formal curriculum that children encounter different cultures confronting each other different religions confronting each other, different races confronting each other, um, you know, different nations confronting each other. If you think about it, it's the Columbus story that is really kind of kids' introduction to foreign policy. And because so often it comes in October still of the, uh, you know, of kids' uh, uh, kindergarten or first grade year, it's, um, you know, it's, it can be their introduction to history itself. And so looked at this way, the, the Columbus myth is, is not, is not what, about, what happened about 500 years ago. It's about what's happening today. It teaches values about race, about culture, about power, about who we are and about who they are. Um, and uh, you know, so what I wanna do, I wanna just, I wanna share some, <laughs> some, some images of some Columbus biographies, children's biographies with you and just kind of think with you about them. You know, on one level, 
this is like a history lesson, but really what I want us to think about is more deeply than that. What are, what are the values that are being imparted to children through this literature? There's a book by uh, Ariel Dorfman, um, The Empire's Old Clothes. And in there, Dorfman talks about how children are given a secret education in children's books. And he talks about how they get a grammar of inequality. I love that expression, that they get a grammar of inequality. And so I want us to kind of look at that, at least a piece of that structure of inequality that kids get through the, the Columbus story. So um, I think that's about it before we start. Um, again, just feel free to kind of, I'm not looking at the chat, so I'm not gonna see it, but, but throw you know, questions and comments in the chat and we can, we can uh, talk about those afterwards. So um, let me see here, okay, there we go. So you know, one of the things that happens in the curriculum is that uh, it it teaches kids who the good guys are, you know, who's who's kind of us and them, and um, and so you know right away that you know kids don't even have to be able to read to know that oh, huh, Columbus is a good guy because he's so good looking, um, you know, Columbus is. Uh, you know, he's, what, well, he's got a strong chin, he had a good orthodontist, <laughs> he's, you know, he's handsome, uh, he's studious, you know, he's, um, uh, and we're also, we're, we're spending time with Columbus in all the books, of course, we're, we're, the, the background is, is being with Columbus. You know, he likes children, children like him, and he's reverent. Um, you know, there's a link between Columbus and Christianity in much of the literature for children. And, you know, we can talk about that later and what the, what the import of that is. But one of the things that you'll notice right away is all these images of Columbus, you know, they're sort of uniform in the sense that they're all kind of good looking guys and sort of in, in control guys, but they're also very different. And there's a reason for that is because no one has a clue what Columbus looked like that there was no portrait done of Columbus until 100 years after he was dead. And so basically when you see images of Columbus, you, you meet the ideology of the illustrator. So you're, you're, you're meeting whatever image of Columbus the illustrator is wanting to put forward. When Christopher Columbus was a child, he always wanted to be like St. Christopher. He wanted to sail to faraway places and spread the word of Christianity. Um, one of the things that I ask kids when I do this uh, slideshow with them, I was a high school teacher, is, um, well, what does a critical reader ask of a quote like this? And, uh, and I think that one of, the, one of the questions to be asked is, well, how does this writer know? And in fact, he doesn't know, or she doesn't know, um, that, uh, you know, Columbus didn't write about, you know, what he wanted, what he, he didn't want about it, write about his childhood. And so again, the illustrators and the writers feel free to just sort of fill in a background for kids um, because what's happening here is a bonding, that, that the literature is establishing that Columbus is a good guy and Columbus is us. And so, and this is important because when Columbus meets the distant others, they will indeed be others. So we spend time with Columbus aboard ship as a young man. Christopher's wish had come true. He was a sailor. 
So some of the books, particularly for younger kids, um, will you know put him on a first name basis with with children. Christopher's wish had come true. Move my screen over so I can read this. Soon he rose above his shipmates, for he was clever and capable and could make others carry out his orders. One of the things that I began to realize as I started reading more about reading this kind of, you know, you know Columbus discovers America literature is that the literature divides humanity, it cleaves humanity. So that on the one hand, there are the clever and capable, and of course, Columbus is one of them the order givers. And then on the other hand, there are the people who are not so clever and capable, and they're just good for, for carrying out the orders of others. So this, so when we think about the structure of reality that is being constructed for children, this idea that there's two kinds of people in the world, they're the order givers and the order takers, the worthy and the unworthy, that that's a really important uh, uh, lesson about humanity that is being imparted to children. He's so clever and capable that he can read the adventures of Marco Polo in English. <laughs> what a guy. So we study maps with Columbus. Again, the whole, the, you know, all of this is kind of a bonding of children with Columbus. He also began to think that the Lord had chosen him to sail west across the sea to find the riches of the east for himself and to carry the Christian faith to the heathens. His name was Christopher. Had not the Lord chosen his name saint, Saint Christopher, to carry the Christ child across the dark water of a river? Well, there's a lot going on here. Um, first of all, this idea that there are this group, these heathens in the world. And it might be that the children's writers would say, hey, don't blame us. This is how Columbus saw them as heathens. But really, that is a key piece of the literature, that children are entered in to the head. They're entered into the consciousness of the colonists, of, of the people who are going to be taking over other people's lands, and they're just left there. And so this idea of kind of us and the heathens, another category. Um, and also, you know, I think that it might be in the Columbus story that children are first introduced to the idea that God takes sides in the world and he's on our side. And so um, this is a book, by the way, award-winning book uh, by Ingrid and Edgar Perrin Dolaire um, put out years and years ago. And, you know, I could walk down to Powell's books and, and find it still today. So, we experience disappointment with Columbus when he goes and kind of, you know, offers his scheme to go to the East Indies by sailing west. He goes to the King of Portugal. The Portuguese, of course, are, um, you know, they're finding their way down Africa. They kind of, they've got their plans for how they're going to get the, the wonderful riches of the East. And so they really don't need Columbus. And then finally, in 1486, Columbus meets up with King Ferdinand and Queen Barbie. <laughs> otherwise, again, they don't know. The illustrators don't know, but this, uh, otherwise known as Queen Isabella. Um, and so, you know, one of the things about this that, that's important that, that the kids, kids are not told about is that 
Christopher Columbus is not just asking for, you know, kind of three ships to sail west and to see if he can kind of, you know, find the East Indies. He's, he's making three big demands. He's saying, I want to get a 10% cut of all the riches that, not just that I bring back from wherever I, I go, but that everyone brings back forever. And so it would be a, a privilege that would be inherited by his sons and their sons and their sons and so forth. So the, that's number one. Number two, he wants to be declared Admiral of the Ocean Sea, which would give him a cut of whatever booty would be captured on the high seas by Spanish sailors. And thirdly, and this is crucial, he wants to be declared governor and viceroy of any new lands that he discovers. So he has these huge demands and he's kept on retainer by the king and queen. They don't say yes. But then with the uh, final Reconquista in Spain, the defeat of the Moors, also the expulsion of the Jews. Um, and uh, in 1492, that Columbus gets his three ships and he is off. So, you know, I had a, a Kirkpatrick Sale who wrote a wonderful book called Conquest of Paradise. He was in a workshop that I gave one time and he pointed out that um, the telescope is not used aboard ship until 1610. So <laughs> in 1492, Columbus is definitely a man ahead of his time here. Um, but, you know, again, the, you know, the history, the, the, the children's literature is not so concerned with history as it is with the construction of reality. And so, um, or the misconstruction. And so in this, in, you know, Columbus is the one who's in control. He's the far-sighted one. He's, uh, you know, he's kind of together. He's kind of, he's got his act together. But the men, and here again, you know, this kind of cleaving of humanity, um, the men are consistently in the children's literature this kind of swarthy horde, there's this deep kind of anti-working class bias in the literature. And so they're portrayed differently, but often they're portrayed with darker skin and certainly not as good looking as Columbus. I don't know if you, any of you had read Archie comics as a kid, but these all look like kind of these rebellious jugheads here. Um, so again, you see very different, you know, portrayals of, you know, what's going on, but all similar that the the men are you know they're anxious they're fearful they're kind of disruptive they're rowdy um they're challenging columbus again the same in all the literature let me see if i can i can't see uh oh i can't see what it says at the top but i think it says i will talk to them and and so i and so this is um, this is a key thing because one of the things that that happens in the the um, the literature is that we it's it's who who gets to narrate the story who's the storyteller and who who does not get to speak and so the Columbuses of the world they get to speak they get to narrate the stories. And the others, in this case, the men, they just shake their fists and kind of act rowdy. Um, but, uh, um, but Columbus, he's the, he's the speaker. So sometimes that, uh, you know, he tells the, the men that they, that God would not like what they're doing in this, in this children's book. 
Other times he will threaten and cajole. But finally, uh, land is spotted, which puts an end to the, uh, you know, to the rebelliousness of the men. And so for me, what comes next is really at the core. It's the essence of the myth of Columbus. And it's so important. And it's told so much in the same way over and over again, whether or not, you know, textbooks have changed a little bit, kids' books, some, but mostly it's the same over and over again. So Columbus comes to the, he comes to the shore. The sailors rowed Columbus to the shore. He stepped onto the beach. He got down on his knees and said a prayer of thanks. Columbus named the island San Salvador. He said it now belonged to Ferdinand and Isabella. Okay, now think about this. So he's coming to a place where all the kids' books, except for one that I've seen, but all the kids' books acknowledge that there are people there. Um, but they're not told the name of the people, the Taino people, or the name that the Taino people gave to the land. The first island was Wanahani. So Columbus named the island San Salvador. So let's just Let's just acknowledge that what's happening here is an act of naked imperialism. Columbus is sailing on behalf of an empire thousands of miles away. He comes to a land that's already inhabited. He plants a flag, you know, says thanks, and now says it belongs to these emperors thousands of miles away. And the problem with this is not that kids are being told that this happened but that there's no critical distancing that happens, that they're never asked, well, what right did Columbus have to do that? And so consequently, they have to, you know, they have to puzzle it out on their own and land somewhere. So, you know, perhaps, you know, Columbus is white and they're not. So white people have a right to rule over people of color, or he's Christian and they're not. Christians have a right to rule over non-Christians. Just might makes right. He can do it because he, he's powerful enough to do it. Perhaps it's because he's coming from a more, technologically sophisticated place in some respects. So, you know, that gives him the right. Who knows what kids come up with, but what is being affirmed in this is the fundamental and deep notion that some people in the world have a right to rule over other people. And that is really a poisonous piece of ideology that kids are being taught in this myth. And all the, you know, all the imagery kind of upholds it, you know, the, the, you know, the flags, uh, you know, it looks like, you know, somebody here is a religious person in back. In fact, on that first voyage, Columbus brought no priests with him. Um, it was not, you know, it was, uh, it was, he called it La Impresa, the enterprise. It was a business op op operation. It was not, it was not to kind of spread the word of Christianity. And, you know, we don't, um, the books acknowledge that that the people who greeted Columbus were friendly, and you know Columbus says all kinds of really wonderful things about them. They're kind, they're generous. Um, at one point, he says they're the best people in the world. In rethinking Columbus, by the way, we we reproduce the first four pages of Columbus's journal, um, and so you know kids can can read that. But what he also says is, with fifty men, 
we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. So there's this notion from the beginning that Columbus is bringing this sort of imperial notion that we are the controllers and these people are less than. And the books are ratifying that, um, you know, that kind of hierarchy of humanity. Now, this is, this is from a book that's no longer in print, but I had to just leave this slide in there. This is from a book called The Cruise of Mr. Christopher Columbus, although it's published by, it was published by Scholastic, and so it's still around in, in kids' libraries. I just think, you know, the idea that, that uh, indigenous people in the Caribbean would be in a birch bark canoe with blankets on is just kind of ludicrous. But, um, you know, the, the lead uh, person here, you know, having fish, the person in the rear with a little sack of gold, helpfully labeled in English gold. Um, you know, the, the third person has the bird. And, you know, I've always tried to figure out that second person, you know, what is that? And I, you know, I've landed on, well, it must be the deed to their land. Here, we've been waiting thousands of years to give this to you. And, you know, and this is an interesting thing, you know, that, that the, so often that the illustrators actually engage us visually from the shore you know so in this instance the the indians the the people uh you know columbus is encountering are on the shore pointing and so we're watching at the scene you know the icons of colonialism the sword the flag the cross and you know columbus out there um notice also that you know these two indigenous people i mean they're really a mirror image and this idea that they all look alike is another one that is introduced to children and here too, you know, there's this kind of, it's really a false promise though, because the children's literature are not, you know, they're not asking kids, well, what do you think the, well, first of all, they're not telling kids in almost any instance uh, the people's name, the Taino people, but they're not, you know, saying, well, what do you think, you know, what do you think the people on the shore thought about this? Let's enter, let's give them humanity. Let's give them imagination and thought. Instead, we, you know, again, we see it visually, but we don't, get let in in the text. Columbus took six Indians back to the ships and set sail. Um, so think about, you know, word took is a very neutral word. You know, I, I, took, I took a shower, I took my grandson to the store. Um, in fact, Columbus is kidnapping people as he goes throughout the Indies. And um, you know, a lot of the books repeat six because Columbus says that the first or second day he was there. But, you know, if you count up, it's something like 31 people that he actually captured. And he's angry, you know, when, you know, they, they you know, two of them got away like chickens, you know, he writes. Um, but, um, you know, he probably took 10 back with him. But again, they're kidnapped victims. Um, they're not, they're not uh, you know, this idea that he took. Um, so on... Uh, Christmas Eve of 1492, um, you know, they're, they're parting, it's Christmas, and Columbus leaves a, a, a teenager in charge of the Santa Maria, which is his flagship there, the biggest ship, and it, it crashes, and they're not able to save it, and so with the timbers, uh, Columbus orders the first building, the first European building in the Americas that is built. It's not a church not a home, it's a fort. Uh, and so kids are not, you know, told, well, who are the enemies or whatever here, but, um, and Columbus 
he leaves 39 men behind uh, before he takes off back for Spain. Um, this, this is a book, Colum Christopher Columbus' Intrepid Mariner, Sean J. Dolan wrote it. He, Columbus, took it for granted that the Spaniards would be able to survive and prosper among the pagan and inferior Indians. Now, if, if Sean Jolin were here with us today, he would say, hey, hold on a second. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not calling them pagan and inferior. I'm just repeating what Columbus said. And right, exactly. And that's precisely the problem, is that, again, children are entered into the mind, into the consciousness of the colonialist, and they're left there. There's not a critical distancing that goes on. And so part of the... The, the import of the Columbus story is that they're being, they're being introduced to the legitimacy of colonialism and that this is the normalization of colonialism. Okay, so um, let's, you know, Columbus goes back, he takes uh, uh, these Tainos with him um, and then, you know, the king and queen, they're all kind of delighted, you know, they're little pieces of gold. By the way, read Columbus's journal, it's widely available. Um, and you can see that once he sees gold there, oh my goodness, that is like, he is just a man on a mission that, you know, that he's going hop island hopping, looking for where he can find the gold on that first voyage. So he returns, he returns actually telling a bunch of lies about, you know, how much gold there is and all that, he doesn't know. Um, but so the second voyage, the second voyage, this is, if the first one is a little exploratory mission, the second voyage is anything but. The second voyage is a full-scale invasion, 17 ships between 12 and 1,500 men. And by the way, and this is significant, all men, all men. And so this is a mission of rape. And in fact, um, there, are, there are journals of the, some of the, the colonists that came with Columbus and they, they brag about, I mean, it's like the, the, the tale of the rapist. And, uh, and so this is something that obviously is entirely left out of the children's literature, but it's also left out of textbooks for high school kids as well. Um, so I'll return to a close-up of this image in a moment. Um, so Columbus talks about the Indians, he's talking about uh, Dominique and Guadalupe, Guadalupe. The Indians who lived there were wild too. They were cannibals who ate their enemies. So this idea, basically what's going on is that um, anybody who can be called a cannibal can be enslaved. Um, and so uh, a lot of times it's the same people, the same people who were at first the kind of friendly people are now, you know, kind of fighting back and they become the cannibals and we can enslave them. This idea that, that you know, that there are people who are inherently wild. And this is back to the Ingrid and Edgar Perrin Dallaire book. And this, uh, you know, widely used. And again, this is the image of indigenous people in the Caribbean, these alleged cannibals. Interesting to note, by the way, that, that Columbus didn't even claim to, to see any, any cannibalism. It's just that idea of establishing that there's humanity beyond the pale. Now, now let's, let's read this carefully. In February, talking about February 1494, in February, Columbus sent the main fleet back to Spain, carrying a small cargo of spices, timber, a party of Indians, and over 220 pounds of gold. 
So in order, spices, timber, Indians, gold. Um, so in fact, uh, this is the way that the literature for children masks reality. So they weren't a party of Indians. In fact, they were the first enslaved people who were sent across the Atlantic. Um, there were at least a couple dozen, perhaps more, that Columbus sent back in February of 1494. Uh, the historian of Africa, Basil Davidson, calls Columbus the father of the slave trade. It's, you know, in this first instance, they're being sent from the Americas back to Europe. The following year, he will order his men to uh, round up the 1600, 1600 Tainos and to choose the 550 best specimens to send back. The king and queen finally say, please, you know, stop sending slaves. Um, and Columbus will write, let us in the name of the Holy Trinity going, go on sending all the slaves that can be sold. Occasionally, the books will, will acknowledge that there was resistance and that the Tainos did not just sort of always welcome uh, Spaniards onto their land, but they fought back. But look at how, in this instance, how children are, how that resistance is framed. Suddenly, more than 50 Indians jumped out from behind the trees. They had bows and arrows. They attacked the men. The men fought back. One Indian was hit by an arrow. Another was badly cut. Okay, so again, that there, there's humanity and then there's Indians. There's men and then there's Indians. Um, also, notice that the Indians, the so-called Indians, the Tainos here, are turned into the aggressors. That they attack the men. <laughs> no matter that that this was part of an imperial mission by Spain to take over all this territory of other people, you know. Nonetheless, they become the uh, the, the defenders. Um, the Indians were surprised by the bravery of Columbus's men. They dropped their. That's one way of looking at it. They dropped their bows and ran away. These were the only unfriendly Indians Columbus's men ever saw. Okay, so this is really important. That, you know, the introduction to children of the category of the unfriendly Indian. And I mean, really just kind of think metaphorically about this. That there, we're not really talking about just so-called Indians here. Note, of course, that, that they're never giving the nationality of the Taino people. But this idea that there are people in the world who are unfriendly Indians. And I remember my, the first book I ever did was, I wrote a book on, on South Africa during apartheid when Nelson Mandela was in prison. And Nelson Mandela, of course, was considered by our government to be a terrorist. And so, you know, the African National Congress and the people who were resisting and resisting apartheid, they were the so-called unfriendly Indians. And so it is a category that gets applied to people around the world you know, just kind of by, if we can say, the dominant discourse by mainstream media. Just so it's important to help children think about this category of friendly, so-called friendly and unfriendly. Okay, so just a couple more slides and let me finish up. Um, so these are images that are not shared with uh, children, with young children. And in fact, you know, I have not seen them in any textbook either for high school kids. It's, it's from the Dutch artist, Theodore de Bruyne. Now he was actually not a witness to any of this, but he's illustrating 
the works of the Spanish priest Bartolome de las Casas. And de las Casas was there for this. He was an eyewitness and, and his accounts are some of the most passionate and, and detailed and, uh, you know, and gruesome of, of what we have. That Columbus in 1495, he instituted a policy on the island of Hispaniola, um, which you know, today is Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but on Hispaniola, that every Taino 14 years of age or older had to bring in a little hawk's bell worth of gold every three months. And if they did, they were safe for another three months. They got a copper token, they could wear it around their neck and it was sort of like a driver's license and okay, you're safe. But if they didn't bring in that gold and Las Casas said it was an absolutely impossible tribute. Um, if they didn't, they were punished in the words of Columbus's, one of Columbus's biographers, who was his own son, Ferdinand, um, by having their hands chopped off and they were left to bleed to death um, by being chased down by vicious attack dogs you see in here. There were, you know, hangings, there were, um, you know, there were other kinds of, you know, there were people who were burned alive and, um, and that was, that's, you know, that's the story obviously left out for children. Let me stop my screen here for a bit. There we go. Um, okay. So, um, so first of all, you know, nothing that I've shared comes from any particular, uh, you know, radical or out of the way, you know, uh, resource. Um, the the main uh, volume on Columbus's life, the the most you know the standard one is uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for history in fourteen in nineteen forty two by Samuel Eliot Morrison, um, and that that book acknowledges that Columbus's policies in the Caribbean led to complete genocide, and he's a fan of Columbus, so he's saying this. Um, the uh, Columbus's uh, biographer, his son Ferdinand, he says that in the first years, the first four years between 1492 and 1496, two-thirds of the Tainos were killed or died in various um, means. There may have been as many as three million people living on the island of Hispaniola um, when Columbus came. We, we, you know, there was no census, we don't know, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. But you know, the point of all this is not to bash Columbus. The point of all this is not to talk about what went on uh, 500 years ago. If there's bashing to be done, it's about how Columbus is represented in the children's literature now. Um, this idea that it's okay for white people to rule over people of color, that, um, that it's okay for powerful company, countries to dominate others. In fact, you know, humanity can be divided in half between the worthy, the significant, and the insignificant, and the unworthy. Um, that in the contact between uh, Western civilization and all the others out there, the only voices you have to pay attention to are people in the West. Um, so uh, it's really a metaphor of domination and subordination that kids are being introduced to. So that creates challenges for educators. And I think the idea is not just to come along and say, okay, um, 
you know, let's, uh, I'm going to kind of introduce you. I'm, I'm going to come on my, on my curricular white horse and say, kids, you've been lied to. I'm going to teach you the truth. The challenge that we have as, you know, as ed, not just educators, as parents too, is how do we equip children with the democratic, the, the anti-racist, the multicultural lens so that they themselves can make sense of this literature and of the world. And you know, the, the great Brazilian educator Paulo Freire was fond of saying that we have to teach children to read the word and the world. And so let me pause there and I can talk about you know, some of the ways that, that um, I've done that with my students, but I've been talking for a long time and let me, Stephanie, throw it to you and, and see if there are any questions or comments in the, in the chat from folks. I don't see any yet. Okay. It must be that everything I have said <laughs> as people have nodded for. Um, so let me just um, let me just share a, a, a couple things. You know, um, I. Uh, I ask my students, yes. my watch is talking to me, telling me that she doesn't understand. Um, uh, so I, I want my kids to, and this is something I try and do in the curriculum more generally, is to return children to, uh, to the official story and to get them to, uh, to try and make sense of the, the curriculum, try and uh, ask critical questions of it. So again, it's not me just telling them a different history, but they're actually kind of learning to, to read the word and the world. And um, let me just share with you some of what my students have done. So I've given, I asked them to become textbook detectives and to, um, hang on one second. I just see, oh, there's one. Let me get to that question. Do you think school textbooks for elementary school students will accurately reflect the real history instead of misinformation? Let me get to that, that's great. Um, so what I ask kids to do is to become textbook detectives and to look at um, their own textbooks or um, uh, you know, they can go into the book room, they can, they can go back to their elementary school, they can look at an encyclopedia, however, and then I give them kind of some critical questions, you know, who's Whose voices do we hear? Whose, whose voices do we not hear? Um, whose side is taken in this? You know, what's the secret education that's being imparted? And then I ask kids to, to write these critiques and then I put kids in small groups and they read their analyses to each other. And what we say, they read then the collective text. They read what they come up with together. And so let me just share, this is all in, in Rethinking Columbus, the, the book that Stephanie uh, talked about at the outset. So here's Matthew, who says, as people read their evaluations, the same situations in these textbooks came out. Things were conveniently left out so that you sided with Columbus's quest to boldly go where no man has gone before. None of the harsh, violent reality is confronted in these so-called true accounts. A, text, uh, uh, a Star Trek <laughs> watcher there. Um, and Gina's, Gina's comment is so interesting. Gina writes, 
it seemed to me as if the publishers had just printed up some glory story that was supposed to make us feel more patriotic about our country. In our group, we talked about the possibility of the government trying to protect young students from such violence. We soon decided that that was probably one of the farthest things from their mind. They want us to look at our country as great and powerful and forever right. They want us to believe Columbus was a real hero. We're being fed lies. We don't question the facts, we just absorb information that is handed to us because we trust the role models that are handing it out. And so Gina there is getting really more to, you know, the character of her whole education. And I think that that's important. And, and Rebecca in this final quote um, does that even more directly. She writes, of course, the writers of the books probably think it's harmless enough. What does it matter? Who discovered America really? And besides, it makes them feel good about America. But the thought that I had been lied to all my life about this and who knows what else really makes me angry. Now, you know, that anger can, um, you know, that anger lives on this kind of razor's edge <laughs> between, um, between cynicism and skepticism. Skepticism is a good thing. We want our students to be skeptical. We want them to demand evidence. We want them to approach what they read, you know, with kind of a cocked head that says, really? Now, how do you know that? How do I know that? Um, and is willing to be convinced and check it out. Cynicism is not the place where we want kids to go. Cynicism is like, it's all fake news. It's all, you know, they're all liars. They're all cheats. And I don't believe any of it. And so, we need to really guard against a curriculum of cynicism and figure out how do we engage students in a way that allows them to come to um, really to see themselves, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, to see themselves as truth tellers, to be able to, you know, what I say is to exercise their utopian imaginations and to believe that things could be different, that, you know, we don't all have to be little Columbuses in the world. So Stephanie, do you want to, I see a bunch of questions now. Yeah, um, there are. Um, <laughs> do you want to, do you want to kind of uh, sort through them for me and? Sure, let me start with, can you speak to how Columbus Day as a national holiday is framed? Is this a place to engage students? For example, Biden has declared both Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day in his proclamation, he makes it about Italian-Americans and immigration with no mention of discovery. Um, while Trump used language of discovery in, in his Columbus Day proclamation. Oh, that's so a really interesting question. Yeah, right. So um, I think it's unfortunate that, um, that uh, many Italian-Americans uh, have seen kind of Columbus Day as really Italian American Day. There should be an Italian American Day, um, but Columbus should not be the you know the the icon that is is represented because you know all the all the values that I talked about in in the slides are what kind of Columbus brings to the table. Um, it's worth noting that the reason why why Italians embrace Columbus was because of the racism 
that was being that the Klan went after Italians, and there were there were mass hangings of Italians, um, particularly in the South, um, and uh, so there was great discrimination. And so, you know, grabbing Columbus as sort of a, a hero was saying, "Look, we're Americans." You know, we're and and also it was you know that there's a book called How the Irish Became White. It was also how the Italians became white, and that was also a, a kind of a claiming of whiteness. So it's a complicated history, and um, there's a wonderful film that we have on this posted at the Zen Education Project, Columbus in America. Um, I don't, I, I think that, that in terms of the question, I think it'd be great to get kids wrestling with that themselves. You know, should there be a Columbus Day? Should it be Indigenous Peoples Day? Is there any good in having a Columbus Day? Is it okay? I mean, let's look at Biden's statement next to uh, uh, Trump's statement and would you, what statement would you write? <clears throat> excuse me. Would you write around around how this um, this holiday should be <clears throat> should be commemorated? Because I think that engaging kids as intellectuals is exactly where we want to be right there. Okay. And the, another question is: Are there picture books, chapter books, or others that that you would recommend? What are some alternatives to the textbooks? Yeah. You know, in um, there was a lot, particularly beginning in, with the quincentenary, there was some more kind of multicultural books that were produced. There's one um, that uh, called Encounter by Jane Yolen. <clears throat> some of you may be familiar with it. Um, and it looks at the, you know, <clears throat> at the Columbus uh, story from the standpoint of a, of a Taino child. And it really flips that whole narrative on its head in a very interesting way. It's got some important problems in it, and I, I have a review of, of Encounter in, um, in Rethinking Columbus, just looking at some of those problems. It still sort of has a kind of a blame the victim. You know, we took their language into our mouths, we took on their values and so forth. So it has kind of a blame the victim uh, and also kind of a distrust of Taino elders. Um, but it's a very interesting book and is one that can be used uh, wonderfully with kids, I think. There's tons of books for older kids. Um, you know, uh, you know, the first chapter of A People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn's uh, book, is one place to start. And there's a young people's edition of, of Howard Zinn that I would also recommend. Of course, we have lots and lots of, you know, we have poetry and, and role plays and different activities in Rethinking Columbus and also at the Zinn Education Project. Um, which is just, I don't know if Josh, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Josh Davidson might be here and could put uh, the Zen Education Project website in the chat, but it's just zenedproject.org. Are there any others up there? Yeah, and I think you've, you've kind of talked about this throughout, but um, somebody's asked, so how do we teach this part of history? It's pretty awful and not really appropriate for young children. Right. Well, one thing would be to not talk about Columbus, but just talk about the Tainos. And, you know, there's a book by Michael Doris um, that I also uh, uh, review in Rethinking Columbus. Um, called Morning Girl. And, you know, it 
uh, it's all just about, you know, imagining the Taino life. And, um, and it's a story from their standpoint. And the very last page, I think it is, of the book, they just kind of see these ships coming. And so, you know, you can, you can talk with young children about this without having to talk about Columbus at all and what happened um, by just sort of inviting them into the lives of the people who were here first. And, and honoring their stories and learning about them. And one of the really cool things that has happened in recent years is that the Taino people themselves have been saying, wait a second, you know, there's all this literature saying that there was a genocide and we were all killed off. And in fact, we weren't. And, you know, there's groups in, in uh, Puerto Rico and uh, in, well, all over the Caribbean and in New York City of, of Tainos who are saying, no, we're still here. And so, you know, there's a, there's a literature, you know, about the Tainos that have, has been growing that I think is really wonderful to, you know, to, to share with, with kids. Um, another thing, you know, that I think, um, I think that can be, without going into the brutality, um, we, can, we can kind of turn, you know, Columbus into a metaphor as well. You know, one of the things that I do is, is I, I, uh, I steal a student's purse in class and I've arranged it with her beforehand and, and I claim it as discovery. And then I just say to kids, well, isn't that right? This is my purse. And kids can see, no, it's not your purse. It's, you know, it's Nicole's purse. I say, well, here, I'm gonna pull some stuff out. This is all, this is my comb. This is my brush, this is whatever. And, and kids can think, no, no, you can't do that. That's not yours. I say, okay, well, well, how do you know it's not? And, you know, if you gave Nicole and me a test on it, who would do better? Um, whose stuff is this in it? Who who worked for the stuff that was in it? And then I said, well, okay, what if we said, what if we said that I discovered Nicole's purse? Now, now it's mine, right? And, you know, kids can see, no, just because you call it something different doesn't make it your purse. And so we can use, we can kind of, you know, we can, we can metaphor, if I can turn that into a verb, the so-called discovery of America, and then ask kids, well, what else might you call it? You know, if, uh, you know, if 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 Columbus said he discovered America, but there were people already living here, and he took it over, you know, what else did you say? You know, you said I stole it, I I ripped it off, I you know whatever. And so, what is what is it when an uh, an army uh, goes into another country? It's an invasion. I'll say so. Columbus invaded America. So you can look at that without looking at you know all the incredible. Uh, brutality that went on. You can still look at the big picture of the of the story and 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 look at that critically as well. I think okay. we've got. Let me see if I can. I don't know if I'm going to be able to uh, try and share the screen again. Oh, yep. Okay. Um, and Bill, I did want to just acknowledge that um, Sakalis Nobis, who I mentioned at the top of the program for introducing me to to your book. Mm -hmm. actually has a question too that it would be great if you um could answer right after we go through this slide okay okay we'll do okay. So very you. quickly very quickly one of the things i ask kids to do is to do children's books um on columbus and this is just one that um my student uh, uh nicole smith leary many years ago came up with and let me just see if i can get these out of my way so um uh oh Ay, ay, ay. Uh -oh, didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to scroll through these really quickly to get to the very end. Okay. So Nicole did this story called Chris. This is Chris and his mother and father. They have just moved from their old house on Spain Street to a new house on Salvadora Street. Chris is having a hard time in his new neighborhood. His mom would say, Chris, look at those nice boys outside. Go make friends. But Chris refused. He decided to go to his room and be by himself. As he looked out of the window, he thought of Ferdinand and Izzy, his best friends from Spain Street. Chris thought to himself, I will never have friends like Ferdy and Izzy. Uh-oh, let me see. I'm going to not be able to read it. Let me get that. Suddenly, he spotted something very colorful in a big tree. He got so excited that he got up and ran out of his house. He didn't even tell his mother where he was going. Amazed by the colors, Chris decided he would go inside and take a closer look. Uh-oh, club, do not enter. I claim this clubhouse in the name of me and my best friends, Ferdy and Izzy. Meanwhile, the three boys who built the clubhouse were off playing basketball. Little did they know that while they were gone, Chris was making plans to take over. When the three boys returned, they saw someone climbing down from the clubhouse. They got up, to the, they went up to the boy and asked him his name. Chris, he answered. Hey, what are you doing up in our clubhouse? One of the boys asked. Chris said, what do you mean your clubhouse? I discovered it in the name of me and my best friends, Ferdy and Izzy. The boys answered, how can you come here and discover something that we built and really care about? Chris thought to himself, hmm, that is true. And then one of the boys had a great idea. Hey, you know what? If you will help us take care of it, we can all share the clubhouse. Chris paused and with a big smile agreed. They all grew up to be good friends and respect each other's feelings and live happily ever after. <laughs> so we're at only that easy, right? But I think that in this instance, I think what, what we're wanting to invite kids in, is to, and what Nicole is suggesting is that we all, we don't have to be little Columbuses, that we can share, we can cooperate, we can make decisions together, that really another world is possible. And so I think that's, <clears throat> that's where, the kid, the, where the curriculum needs to leave kids, not with the inevitability of colonialism and domination, but with the possibility of equality and democracy and, um, and racial justice. So, um, so uh, Stephanie, can you, can you so, get me? Sure, it says we talk about this with our indigenous children. I don't see why we can't teach real history. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'd like to hear her say more about that. I think we should teach real history. And, um, and obviously, you know, the, the, you know, teaching the truth, and, and that's one of the things, you know, the attack on critical race theory is not an attack on critical race theory, you know, by the right wing. The attack on critical race theory is really an attack on teaching the truth. And if you, if you think about the history of this country, and, you know, begin it with Columbus if you want, um, it is. It's filled with um, it's filled with with uh, uh, violence and domination, and uh, you know it's an imperial uh, mission. And so we need to be honest about that with children. And so it doesn't it doesn't help kids 
to hide that from them. Um, obviously, we need to do it in developmentally appropriate ways, and I'm not an elementary educator, so I will leave it to the elementary teachers as to you know, when to do that. But I think that this is absolutely right, that we need to teach the truth to children, and that, um, and that those legislators who are afraid um, of kids learning the truth, uh, they're really on the wrong page. And it's um, uh, that, and there's nothing, by the way, you know, I'm speaking as a white man, right? There's nothing of this that needs to lead to any white shame unless you identify with white supremacy. If, in, in which case, yes, you are gonna feel shame as you should. Um, but, but there is a sense of responsibility for all of us that we all have to, and in, in this instance, as Nicole is suggesting, that we all have to figure out how do we build a different world? And you know, how do we work for justice? And that's where we want to leave kids. We want to we want kids to see themselves as truth tellers, and as as activists for for social justice. And that is not, you know, that is not um, uh, that is not a that is not partisan teaching. That is just good teaching. That is just uh, you know inviting them into the world as intellectuals and as people who have the capacity to make things different. Okay, we're almost at uh, one o'clock. So I um, just want to thank everyone for attending today. And I also wanna give a special thank you to, to Bill uh, for the presentation and again, I just want to thank uh, Sakawas Novus again for uh, bringing this book and Bill's work to, to my attention. So very much appreciated. So um, Bill, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how, how yeah, can they sure. do that? E email just bill at rethinkingschools.org. So bill at, at rethinkingschools.org and rethinking schools is all run together. I want to encourage people too to uh, subscribe to Rethinking Schools magazine. It's a quarterly, it's how we kind of keep this conversation going and visit the Zen Education Project, just zenedproject.org, where there's tons and tons of free downloadable people's history materials. Okay. Well, with that. We will end things, but thank you again, Bill. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie.